Well, thanks, Pastor Mark. It's great to be back at Compass Bible Church. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, thank you for Compass Bible Church. Thank you for the way in which your gospel is ringing out here in Orange County and to the ends of the earth through gospel partnership. And so we thank you that we get to be a part of the ministry of Compass Bible Church, even from afar. And thank you for the way you are working the lives of my brothers and sisters who are here uh, and reaching people over there where we are in Dubai. Father, we pray for this morning. We pray that as we open your word and as we look into John chapter 11, that you would uh, bring your word to bear powerfully on our hearts and on our lives. We pray that we would see the glory of Christ in this text and that as, we, um, as our eyes are open to his glory, uh, that our hearts would be soft towards what you have to say to us, that we would be convicted of sin where needed, that we would be um, inspired to hope and uh, to follow wherever Christ would take us. So Father, I pray that you would do your work through your word in this service this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been a great joy for my family and I to be uh, back at Compass Bible Church these last couple of weeks. Uh, my older boys had a blast at Revival, and so all of you who are involved with the Revival, thank you so much uh, for that week. We had a great missions night on Monday night with Pastor Mike and some of the other uh, Compass Ministry partners, and so it was um, fun getting to do that Q&A, and thanks to those of you who came and were a part of that, and then what a privilege now to open God's Word together. Um, I do want to bring you greetings from Redeemer Church of Dubai, where I serve as one of the pastors, and then the Golf Training Center, our seminary program uh, that I lead and teach classes at there in Dubai. Um, our family's been in Dubai four years now, and so we feel like we're just getting started, but it's been great to, to get settled and to, to feel comfortable, feel like we're at home there. And uh, I know so many of you are praying for us faithfully and regularly, and uh, we thank you for that. We want you to keep that up, and of course, we want you to get on CBC Overseas website and read all the updates about what's going on over there. There's so much that the Lord is doing. And uh, just to summarize for you, the overall report is good. The report is one of gospel progress, that people in Dubai are being saved, people that come from really every country under heaven, but especially the countries right around us, there in the Middle East and in Africa and in India. Uh, the Lord is saving people. The Lord is adding to his church there at the training center. This fall, our fourth year, we'll have about 90 different students from 30 countries that are enrolled in training for gospel ministry. And praise the Lord. Um, so Lord willing, next summer, a year from now, we'll have our first graduating class from that training center, and we have the, those men in that class that are getting ready and making plans to go plant churches in hard places, churches in India and churches in places like Kuwait and other places in the UAE, and so the Lord is building his church in the ends of the earth. He's doing that through your partnership, and we couldn't be where we are doing what we do without the investment of Compass Bible Church in that uh, so thank you. Thank you for being a part of that work. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John 11. And as you do, I want to tell you about one of my students, one of those prospective church planters. His name is John. John comes from India. Uh, and his, him and his wife moved to Dubai about 15 years ago to take a job. He works as an engineer there in Dubai. And so they've been there for, for years. Their three children have been born there and brought up there. And that's home, Dubai is home for them. 
at this point. John's been active in the church uh, all the while, and, and the Lord has been putting on his heart over these last few years an increasing desire, an increasing burden uh, to be in ministry full-time. And so when we started our training center, he was one of the first guys that came and signed up and, and joined the class. And since then, he's been working hard to learn all that you need to learn to, to be a pastor and a church planner. So he's studying his exegesis, his hermeneutics, learning about the Bible, learning theology, learning about church ministry. He's working hard in all of that. He is serving in the church, leading our Malayalam language Bible study uh, for people from South India. And so uh, just, just a great brother. But all the while, as he's doing this, he's asking the question, what's next? What comes after this season of training? Where would the Lord have him serve in ministry? And on, on the one hand, of course, there's India, the country that he comes from, and all the needs that are there in that most unreached country in the world. But on the other hand, life in Dubai is pretty good. It's pretty comfortable there in Dubai. His kids are, are, are doing great there in Dubai. So maybe what the Lord has for him is continued ministry there in Dubai. Well... This past January, right in the middle of his third year of seminary training there in Dubai, John starts experiencing some strange medical symptoms. He goes to the doctor, gets some tests run, and the news comes back, and the news is not good. The doctor says, you've got a tumor in your abdomen, not just a little tumor. It turns out to be a massive tumor. In fact, it, it, it turned out to be a 10-pound tumor, this huge tumor right inside of him. So just in an instant, all of his thinking, all of his planning, all of, all of this plotting of what's going to happen for future ministry, now we're thinking about immediate mortality. Is he still going to be alive a month from now, a year from now, a week from now? He's looking at this surgery. It's going to be an very invasive, very difficult surgery, difficult recovery if he survives the surgery, maybe chemotherapy, treatment for cancer, all of those things. And so just with one visit to the doctor, it seems like all future hopes and plans are lost, are lost. And see, as we, as we partner together and as we talk about preaching the gospel together and planting churches together and, and, you know, as you're here and doing life together as a church by God's grace, there's going to be some happy stories, but there's also going to be some stories of loss. And what do we do with that loss? I'll tell you more about John here in a little bit. That's the question I want to ask is what do we as Christians do? How do we think? How do we handle that kind of loss? That's what I want to ask as we go into John 11. I'm going to read the passage for us, starting with verse 1. So look at John 11, 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, 
Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciple said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and I am glad for your sake I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So the story in John 11 is a story about three siblings, two sisters, Mary and Martha, one brother, Lazarus, and they're close friends of Jesus. He's, he stayed in their house. Uh, when, they come to Beth, when he comes to Bethany, he, he resides there with them just outside of Jerusalem. As we see in verse two, Mary, the sister, is the one who later on would anoint Jesus' feet with oil, wipe, wipe with her hair. As we see in verse three, he loves them. He loves them. But then something happens. Lazarus gets sick and 
People get sick all the time. It's not out of the ordinary, but this seems to be out of the ordinary. This is not a usual illness. He's really sick. We don't know what the disease was, lots of disease in those days. It could have been malaria, it could have been plague, it could have been dysentery, but he's really, really sick. And so put yourself in the shoes of these sisters. Their brother seems to be their only family member. And here's big brother, he's been, he's been in bed for days. His fever is raging. His temperature is getting hotter. He can't keep any food down. And they're, they're doing what they can. Sure, they, they call the local village medicine man, you know, come out and look at Lazarus. And maybe he diagnoses, you know, whatever and gives him herbs and all this stuff. And it's not working. It's not helping. Lazarus keeps getting sicker. Lazarus, they know, is dying. What can we do? I know. Let's call Jesus. Let's call Jesus. We know that whatever this disease is, Jesus can handle it. Jesus heals people. Jesus does miracles. Jesus would want to keep his good friend alive. So verse three, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But there's a complication. Jesus is not nearby. Jesus is not in the neighborhood. He was just there. He was just in Jerusalem in John chapter 10. And if you read that chapter, things don't go well. He's teaching. The Jews accuse him of blasphemy. They pick up stones to stone him. And so he, he leaves. He, gets, he just escapes. Barely, he gets out of town. And it says in 1040 that he went across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And so if you, you say, okay, where is that place? And if you put together the different references and the different gospels, where is that place where he was? The most likely site is a place called Batania. Batania is up in the far, it's a remote area. It's in the far northeast of Israel where today is called the Golan Heights, up above the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's way up there. It's about 100 miles away from Bethany. Uh, to walk down there, and they didn't have cars, and they didn't have planes, and so to walk 100 miles from Batania down to Bethany, it's about a four-day walk one way, and so this messenger they sent to go find Jesus, he's got to walk up there four days if he knows where he's going, but if he has to ask around and try to figure out where Jesus is, it could have taken much longer, so it's going to be days and days and days before Jesus gets there. It's not the response time that you want when you call 911, right? But with every day that passes... Lazarus is slipping closer and closer to death. Mary and Martha are grieved. They're tired after, after caring for him all through the night. They're fearful of, of, what, of what's going to happen if he dies. But they're hoping. Every day they're hoping that, that maybe today is the day that Jesus shows up. Maybe he's, he's on his way right now. Maybe that door's about to open and he's going to walk through right now. Or maybe, they think, maybe he won't even have to come. He'll just speak a word from a distance and Lazarus will be healed like he did with that centurion son. Maybe that's what's going to happen. But Jesus has got to come. He's got to do something. But it doesn't happen. One day passes, then another day, and then, then it's been a week. And Jesus doesn't come and Lazarus isn't healed. And then tragedy happens Lazarus dies. He dies, and so here's Mary and Martha, and their hearts are broken. They're, they're crying, and they're grieving, and there's this blur of activity around them as the, the people of the village are trying to console them, and in that culture, they would bury on the same day, so they're getting the body, and they're wrapping it up, and they're going out there to the old family tomb, and they're opening it up, and they're, they're, they're having the funeral on that very day, and Jesus is a no-show. He's missed the sickness, He's missed the last words. He's missed the last breath. He's missed the funeral. And now he's even missing the mourning. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how Mary and Martha felt their brother is lost? And where was Jesus? Can you sympathize with that? 
I remember when I was about 21 years old, just graduated from college, I got a phone call one morning, 5 a.m. Phone rings, it's about my friend Matt. My friend Matt, see, Matt had been my good friend in college. We just graduated together a month before, two weeks before. Uh, he'd been at my wedding, one of my groomsmen standing right there beside me. And the phone call's telling me, Matt's hit by a drunk driver. He's dead. Where was Jesus then? Had another friend from college, had this beautiful daughter named Alistair. She's one year old, and they found cancer. They found cancer, and so they, they go to the doctors, and they've got the Caring Bridge website up there, and people are praying, and, and there's good news, and things are going well, and then there's, there's hard news, and there's been a regression, but it goes up and down and up and down, and there ends up being five years Five years of doctors and treatments and hospitals and shaved heads and chemo, and then she dies, six years old. Where was Jesus then? See, we've all had those times where we've cried out, Lord, do something here. Lord, heal my brother who's sick. Lord, save my child who's lost. Lord, Lord find me a job. Lord, do something. But it seems like he's absent, like he didn't get the message. And then tragedy strikes. Loss finds us. So how, how can we as Christians, how can we face this kind of loss? The kind of loss that happens when we're relying on Jesus to show up and he doesn't. Four days after the burial, maybe 10 days after Mary and Martha sent the message to Jesus, he finally arrives. Look at verse 21. He, he gets there. He sees Martha, verse 21. She says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And look at verse 32. Mary says exactly the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the Jews wonder this too. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, verse 37, also have kept this man from dying? They're saying, if only you had been here, Lord, this didn't have to happen. You had the power to stop it, didn't you? So why didn't you? Where were you? We know this Jesus does miracles, so why didn't he do one this time? And so you might think, you might think, well, well it's because he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's indifferent to the sufferings of, of this family. And the text wants us to see, no, that's not it. That's not it. Look, at, it goes out of its way to show us that's not it. Because look at verse 3. This is, he whom you love. He loves this family. When he weeps at the tomb later on, the Jews say, verse 36, says, see how he loved him. He loved him. And then verse five is incredible. Look at verse five. It says, Jesus loved, and in our original, it's like intensified. It's like he really loved Lazarus, or Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But then look at the next word. In my ESV, the very next word, the first word of verse six, it says, so. He really loved them so he stayed two days longer where he was. See that? It's not he loved them, but he just couldn't make it. He loved them, but it was impossible for him to get down there. Circumstances got in the way. No, it's he loved them, so he stayed two days longer where he was. In other words, his delay, his holding back, it was motivated by his love for them. It's saying that sometimes God's love does not take the form of acting right away. That's what it's saying. It's saying that because of his love, he wanted them to see something. Look at verse four. Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. What's it for? It's for the glory of God 
so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He's saying, that's what you need to see, disciples. That's what you need to see, Mary and Martha. That's what you need to see, Compass Bible Church. That this illness is not going to stop with death. That death is not going to be the end of this story. And that changes things. That means that there's a meaning in the loss. That's what Jesus is saying in, in all of it, right? In all of it, in all the pain and all the suffering that Lazarus felt and all of his sickness and, and misery and all of the, the sisters' uh, care and concern and fear and all of their grief and mourning after he died. In all of this, Jesus is saying there's meaning in that. God is doing something with that. It's kind of like in John 9. John 9, verse 1, Jesus is walking along. It says, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And see, that's what it means when it says this is for the glory of God. It's saying that, that God wants to be known. He wants his works to be displayed. That God wants to display some aspect of himself through this terrible situation. That, that because God wants his people to know what he's like. God wants people to, to worship him. He wants people to, to know him. He wants all people in the world to see his power and see his glory. And sometimes in ways that are so hard for us to see and hard for us to understand. Sometimes the suffering of his people is part of that story. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't grieve. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't mourn. This is, this is a broken world. Jesus wept, it says. But it means that somehow in all of this loss, there's glory. There's glory there. And seeing God's glory here starts with understanding this, this waiting. Why do they wait? Why is this delay? Look at verse 6. After hearing of the illness, Jesus stays two days longer where he is. Then after two days, verse 11, he basically says, Lazarus has died. Let's go. Let's go now. So two days after they get the message originally, Jesus knows through the Holy Spirit, through divine omniscience, he knows that now Lazarus has died. He tells the disciples that. And he says, let's go now. Remember, it's a four-day walk from where Jesus is to where Lazarus is. And they set out two days after getting the message. In other words, if they had set out immediately upon hearing, they would have gotten there two days after he died. So waiting two days is not the difference between getting there before Lazarus dies or after. It's the difference between being two days late or four days late. And, and why does that matter? How, how does that delay show Jesus' love and show God's glory. You gotta remember, you gotta remember that medicine was very primitive back then. Medicine was not like medicine is now. They didn't have these scientific ways of knowing for sure that somebody was really dead as opposed to just in a coma. No heart rate monitors, no breathing monitors, all the stuff we have in ICU. They didn't have any of that, right? So sometimes you didn't know. Sometimes you got it wrong. Every now and then, they would think that somebody was dead. They'd get them all wrapped up and have the funeral, and they're all, you know, like saying their last words, and the guy sits up. He's alive. That would happen sometimes. He, he opens his grave, clothes, looks around, like, what are you all doing here? Like, I was just sleeping. This is awkward. That happened. And you say, no, that couldn't really happen. But guess what? It happens even today, because, look, I have this news article. I got this off the internet. So it must be true. Um, no, but this is legit. This is Fox News. This is a fair and balanced news article. And, and here's the headline. I'll read you the headline. It says, Indian man, 20, 
3rd. This is from July 3rd, like three weeks ago. Indian man 20 wakes up at his own funeral after being pronounced dead by doctors. And so you read the news article and it, and it describes that situation. And the brother of the man is quoted in the article and he says, yeah, we were very traumatized by this because first we had to come to terms with his passing and then only to see him move during the funeral. And so the, they're, they're very stressed. And the, and the doctor says, he's quoted in the article too, the doctor says, the patient is in critical condition, but definitely not brain dead. He has pulse, blood pressure, and his reflexes are working. He's been put on ventilator support. And then the article says, the, the city's chief medical officer also told the news outlet that an investigation is underway into the country's medical practices. Probably good. You probably should investigate that, right? So this happens sometimes. And the Jews developed an explanation for this kind of situation. They said, well, here's what happens. They said, when somebody dies, the spirit of the person, it kind of goes out of the body, but it doesn't go far. It stays around the body. It kind of hovers over the body for three days, and it might come back in, but after three days, it's gone for good. In other words, you're like 99% sure someone's died when you bury them, but you're only 100% sure when they start to rot. That's the idea. And so in the Gospels... There's actually two other stories of Jesus reversing death. In Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter is sick and dies. Luke 7, there's a widow's son who dies. And Jesus does these miracles. He, he brings them both back to life. But in both of those cases, that happens immediately after they die. And so there's the opportunity for some naysayer to look at that and say, are you sure that girl was really dead? Are, are you sure she wasn't just sick and sleeping and, you know, he helped her for sure, but I don't think she was really dead. See, somebody could say that. But see, by delaying until the fourth day, Jesus got to that 100% level of certainty. This guy, Lazarus, he was really, finally, indisputably, irreversibly dead, right? Because we know now, of course, with the benefits of our modern knowledge, we know that dead means dead, we know that the, the second Lazarus' heart stopped beating, that oxygen stopped going to his various cells and they began to die. We know that his brain cells were the very first to die within just a few minutes. By three hours after Lazarus' death, we know that rigor mortis would have set in. His limbs would have become stiff and immovable. Over the next 12 hours after Lazarus died, his body temperature would cool enzymes would be released and that would cause the cells to actually eat themselves, decomposition. So by two days after Lazarus died, all of the internal organs would have fully decomposed that have produced these, these gases and horrible odors. And by three or four days after Lazarus died, these gases would have caused this huge bloating, almost doubling the size of his body. So look at verse 38 with that in mind. Martha's been around some dead bodies, I think. There will be an odor, she says. Or as the King James says, he stinketh. <laughs> this is a very nice kind of euphemistic way to say it. But the fact of the matter is four days later, four days later, if you knew Lazarus, right? And if you were to go in that tomb on that day and sort of unwrap the grave clothes and look at what's there, what you would see at that time would not look like the Lazarus you knew just sleeping. No. What they would see in that tomb on that day would be this bloated, putrid, disgusting corpse in the process of decomposition and being eaten by bugs. That's what they would see. In other words, four days later, Lazarus is not like a computer that's just been sort of powered off and needs someone to press the reboot button to kind of you know, zap him. 
like that. It's not like that. Raising this corpse from the dead is not a matter of restarting his heart because he doesn't have a heart. It's not about turning on his brain because he, he doesn't have a brain. It's all lost. It's all gone. Raising Lazarus from the dead involves regeneration. It involves recreation. And with man, this is impossible. This is impossible. But look at verse 40. Jesus comes to the tomb and he says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's going to show him the glory of God because the one who created with the word, he can recreate with a word. So look at verse 43. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He's dead four days and he's back. He's remade, he's recreated, he's walking and he's talking. Illness and death are completely undone. And Jesus does, he does a lot of miracles in the Gospels. He stills the storm and he feeds the 5,000 and he casts out demons and he heals the sick. And in that he shows his power over weather and power over nature and power over the spirit world and, and all of these things. But here in this miracle, really the, the, the pinnacle of all of Jesus' miracles, what he's showing is that Jesus has the very power of life and death. Look how he explains it. 25, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life, he says to Martha. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is saying that I hold the keys to life and death. And here's Martha. And Martha's got this kind of general hope in the afterlife as, as Jews would. She says in verse 25, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, let's get more specific here. Because he's saying, what you need to see is that I am the one, I am the only one who, by speaking a word, can reverse the curse of death. Resurrection, Jesus is saying, is about how a person relates to me. And look at verse 25. See that word, whoever? That word, whoever, what's he saying with that word? He's saying that, that Lazarus, it's not just about Lazarus. It's not just about Lazarus. Lazarus is like an example. He, he's a template. He's a, a proof that Jesus has this power. But when he says whoever, what he's showing us is that, that this is for everyone. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And see, all of us are, are in that. All of us are in this, this default human position where dead means dead. Dead means it's over. It's appointed for man once to die. And after that comes judgment. Dead means consequences. But look what Jesus is saying. Jesus is calling them. He's, he's saying, come to me. Believe in me. Follow me. And you can all be Lazarus. See? He'll do the same miracle for every single one of you, for whoever believes. That's what he's saying. Death is universally inevitable, but resurrection is universally available. Lazarus is just the preview. He's just the foretaste. You know, Lazarus later died again. But in Christ, all of us, brothers and sisters, all of us, we, we look forward to resurrection unto life eternal. And what that means, Compass Bible Church, is that, is that you, as, as you're suffering, as you're sick, as, as you're grieving, what it means, Jesus is saying, is that your sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God. So for the one who believes, here's how you face loss. Here's how you face loss, that even as you grieve, you cling to this hope of resurrection. You cling to this confidence that 
your Savior isn't absent, that he does hear, that he does love you, that, that, that even when it seems like all hope for good is lost, that he's, he's doing something, that he's showing his glory to you, that he's showing his glory to the people around you, to people even that you may never meet in ways that you may never know. But it's this confidence that just like Lazarus's death and his sister's loss, it wasn't the end of their story. For you as a Christian, whatever you suffer, whatever you lose, it's not the end of the story, but it's just the continuation of God showing his work in you. It's kind of like the Avengers. Like the Avengers, you've seen Infinity War, anybody? Not the one from this year, the one from last year. I got like one thumbs up over there. That's something. All right, so in the Avengers, you watch Infinity War and it ends very badly. Bad guy snaps his fingers and half of everybody dies. All this, you know, half the superheroes die, half the people die. It is not a good ending. The good guys lose. And if that's the end of the story, it's tragedy. It's terrible. But guess what? They made another movie. And now we've got this end game. And, you know, spoiler alert, the good guys come back and the good guys win in the end. So what seemed like a terrible, tragic ending was actually a terrible middle and it was setting up the happy ending. See, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that if you're in Christ, as you suffer, look beyond that. Look, look beyond even physical death and see that for all who believe the end of the story is the same and the end of the story is good. Because the end is resurrection. The end is being like Lazarus. The end is the reversal of death, the reversal of curse. The end for all of us in Christ is recreation. And, and, and all of you who went to revival last week, you know about this, right? You know about the, the end and the new heavens and the new earth and the eternity of life and new creation, worshiping God and serving him forever. That's the end for all of us. It's good. It's good. Physical death is not the end because after your death, after, can we say, your apparent death, you get to be with Christ for all of eternity. See, it's like the story of Job. You know, Job in the Old Testament, and Job's a wealthy guy. He's a comfortable guy. Tragedy strikes his life, and he loses everything. He loses his possessions, his family, his health. He suffers incredibly. But through it all, Job maintains faith. And you know what happened? You guys know the story, right? Sunday school graduates. It's at the end of the book of Job. It says this, Job 42.10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. See, Job's tragedy, it wasn't the end of his story, it was the middle. In Job 42.12, it says, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job, the part after the story, you know, the Lord blessed those latter days more than the beginning. Brothers and sisters, that's the promise that Jesus is making right here to you. He's saying that resurrection means that we're all Job. We're all Job that this broken world will do its worst, but your last days will be more blessed than your beginning. Whatever tragedy, whatever suffering you may face, you are 100% guaranteed that if you are in Christ, your, your ending will be a happy one. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said it this way. He said, if you are godly, you will never suffer except in this world. Except in this world. And here's the point. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Here's the point. Face loss. Face loss because you believe in the resurrection. Face loss, sorry, because you believe he's the resurrection. Because after making this promise, Jesus turns to Martha and he says to her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Here's what he's saying. He's asking Martha, can you go beyond just kind of liking me? 
Can you go beyond appreciating me as a good guy and a good teacher and a good friend? But he's saying, Martha, can you take this next step of betting your entire hope for happiness, both in this life and the one to come, on this truth that I am the resurrection and the life, that I am the only one who can grant eternal life? Martha, do you believe this? Later on, Jesus says, or, or sorry, John says, these signs, the, these miracles like this one are written, John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, Jesus performed miracles like this one to bring about a response on our side. That response is belief. So Compass Bible Church, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Then you can face loss because you believe he's the resurrection. That's what Martha needed to see. That's what we need to see. And we're not done because there's more for us to see here because here's the thing. Here's the thing that most of us most of us, you know, as, as Christians, sometimes we surprise ourselves. Sometimes we're like ready to rise to the occasion when loss finds us, when suffering finds us. But, but even those of us who are maybe ready for that, we still live most of our lives with this sort of defaulty, human-y kind of cultural mindset, which is to keep, to keep, to sort of gain whatever comfort and security we can for ourselves little by little and then to hold on to it and to keep it. That's the way we think. And in our passage, we've got these disciples and they had this kind of keep mindset. Look at verse eight. The background is, we already said chapter 10 that, that Jesus had been in Jerusalem that they, they had, you know, accused him of blasphemy. They were going to stone him. They were going to lynch him. And so he, he gets out of town. He re retreats and he escapes barely. What that means is that for Jesus right now, Jerusalem and the, the surrounding suburbs like Bethany, it's not a safe place. And so when the disciples hear about Lazarus, they get this message, Lazarus is, is really sick. So from Mary and Martha's side, this is literally a matter of life and death. But for the disciples oh, that's too bad. We like Lazarus. He's a good friend. You know, we'd be sorry if something happened to him, but really there's nothing we can do. So the, the disciple said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? They're saying, there are lines we shouldn't cross here, Jesus. See, they've given what they can. They've been reasonable. They've left home and family. They've endured hardships, but, but there's a limit to that. They're willing to serve. They're willing to sacrifice some. But they're not willing to lose. Because their mindset is to keep. To, to keep their safety. To, to keep their long-term prospects. To, to keep their very lives. And that's all of us. We all, we all have this, this keep mindset. Let's, let's play it safe. Let's be wise. Let's, let's keep something aside for a rainy day. But here's Jesus and Jesus is looking forward toward the cross. He's looking forward to the founding of the church. He's, he's looking forward to the mission to all nations. And Jesus says that I need a people who are ready to lose. So he gives this kind of cryptic response. He says in verse 9, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And it makes sense, right? Most people in that culture worked in the daylight. They didn't have all these artificial lights. And so uh, you wake up with the sun and the sun's up and you can see. And so now it's time to get to work. 
And so you work, and you work hard all day long, and then at some point, it's gonna get late in the day, and the sun's gonna go down, and you're gonna lose the light, and at that point, it's time to stop work for the day. That's how they operated. And so he, he's looking at that, and he's saying this to the disciples. He's saying that, yes, there comes a time when we should stop. There comes a time when we should hold back, when we should stop moving forward, when we should no longer keep advancing for the gospel. He's saying quitting time is coming, but it's not here yet. It's not here yet. He's saying the sun is up, so we are gonna keep going. We're gonna keep doing the work that the Father has given to us because it isn't quitting time yet. Look at verse 14. Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Let us go. He's saying, let's go, disciples. He's saying, he's saying, come with me to Jerusalem, to that place, the place of danger, the place we just barely escaped from with our lives. He's saying, let's go there. He's asking them to risk everything and to voluntarily lose. See? To lose their security. To follow him into the very jaws of death. And then Thomas speaks up. Thomas, you know Thomas, one of the disciples, doubting Thomas, as we call him sometimes. Look what he says, verse 16. He knows what Jesus is talking about. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And I don't know Thomas's heart. I don't know if Thomas is, is being sarcastic or if he's really being sincere. But either way, Thomas and ultimately the rest of the disciples, they answer the call. It's a call to go and to die. And guess what? This was a mission to the death. The disciples were not wrong about that. If, you know, and if Jesus had loved this present life, if Jesus' goal was to keep, maybe he stays hidden. He can just stay up there in Batania. He can stay up there by the Sea of Galilee at his nice lake house, wherever he was. He can stay hidden up there and maybe the whole thing blows over. Maybe the Jews forget all about it. Maybe, you know, things calm down. People turn their attention to other matters. Maybe the whole thing blows over and Jesus can just keep teaching and keep doing ministry for years and years and years to come. Maybe so. But the raising of Lazarus, it had consequences. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So verse 53. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The resurrection of a dead man, it was the moment when Jesus could no longer be tolerated. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so by leaving safety and going to Bethany, Jesus was taking the steps that would inevitably lead to his death, to his crucifixion. And so as he stood there, in front of the tomb of Lazarus, and he, he called upon those people to see the glory of God. What was about to happen was not just a resurrection, but a substitution. Because Lazarus would keep his life, but Jesus would lose his. That's what it's saying. The disciples' assessment of the danger was right, but their response to the danger was wrong. Because the equation has changed. That's what it means when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, 
he's not just resurrection. It's not just a future thing. It's not just like live however you want to live now, live the way everybody else in the culture does now, and then hope in resurrection later on. He's saying, no, he's saying, I am both. I'm the resurrection and the life. Life now, resurrection then. He's both. And see, resurrection, it's his future hope. Resurrection is life after death. He's saying, whoever believes in me, though he die, you die, yet shall he live. You're going to live after death. The life. Life is promising something more. Life is a new perspective on now. It's what he means when he says, everyone who lives, now you live. You live and believe in me. If that's you, you shall never die. Jesus brings life now, resurrection life now. Your life is changed now because you believe in resurrection. He is life. In him was life, John says, John 1, 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Resurrection life that Jesus brings is not just a future possibility, but it's a present certainty. And what that means is that governments and employers and diseases and cancer and, and yes, even death, they can hurt you, they can devastate you, but they can't take life. They can't take the eternal life that you now already in Christ possess. So Jesus says in Luke 12, 4, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. And here's the lesson. The lesson for the disciples in this text and the lesson for us now is that the same hope, the same resurrection hope that sustains us when we face loss, that same hope also must drive us to embrace loss embrace loss because he says you will never die you will never die so you can embrace loss this text brothers and sisters it's not just about hoping in resurrection when loss finds you it's about believing so much in resurrection that you go find loss that you go find loss what if we did that what if, what if we opened our mouth and spoke with loving clarity when it might mean the loss of a friendship? What if your, your next move wasn't to a, a nicer house or a nicer suburb, but to some dilapidated global city or, or shady part of town because there's gospel need there? That's a loss, a loss of comfort, a loss of security. What if some of you young people in the room, as you think about the future and you, you think about careers, what if you thought about that, not in terms of maximum comfort or maximum fulfillment, but maximum gospel impact? What would that mean if we embrace the loss of advancement and power and prestige? What about the parents here? What about us parents in the room? And, and it comes so naturally to us to, to build our lives around teaching our children to gain and to keep and what if we had the faith to reverse course in that and train our children to lose, to lose, to go find loss for the gospel, loss for Jesus? And what if instead of you know, thinking about our financial giving in terms of how many Starbucks have we given up this week, what if we thought about giving up cars and giving up bedrooms and giving up pools and, and embracing the loss of comfort, the loss of security? What if all of us, whether we're, we're young or we're old or we're, we're middle-aged, whatever we are, what if we all related to each other in the church if we, if, we, if we interacted in community in a way that embraced the loss of me, 
the loss of what I want, my, my preferences, the way I like things to be, and the titles that I want, and the recognition that, that I want. What if, what if it wasn't about me? What if we just served? What if, what if we just gave? What if we were a people who embraced loss? Well, here's the response. Here's the response. And, and, and guess what? I grew up in Southern California, then in Texas, you know, places like this. I, I know what we think. We, we think we hear this and we say, okay, that's, that's nice. That's good. But hey, we got to be wise. We got to, you know, we, we got to think about the future. We, we, you know, what are you saying? We got to like sell our house and live in a tent somewhere. I'm not saying that. We, I don't live in a tent. I have more than one pair of pants. I have an iPhone, etc. We can be wise. We can think about long-term stewardship. We can think about how the Lord can use our stewardship over time. But, 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 but here's the thing. Don't you see that this instinct towards caution, this instinct towards qualifying our service, that's exactly the thing that Jesus is pushing back against. See, Jesus is saying to these disciples, he's saying, stop defaulting to self-protection. Stop making that being the first thing you think of. Oh, what, what can I not do? Instead, default to just following Jesus, following Jesus, whatever the cost, whatever the loss. Yeah, it's theoretically possible to lose too much, but that's not us, right? We're the people who keep too much, who keep too much. And when we do that, we're believing a lie. And that lie is saying that this life is all that matters. And when we believe that lie, we're a slave to keeping and to holding on, a slave to security. But if real life is Jesus, if, if he is the life then you're free. You're free to follow him. You're free to work while it's day. You're you're free to lay your life down to show others his glory. You know who gets this? You know who gets this now? John, my friend, the guy with the 10-pound tumor who I told you about in the beginning. Guess what happened? So he had this surgery, and I thought, okay, if he even survives this surgery, it's gonna be months before I see him in a classroom again, months before thinking about any kind of ministry in the future. The Lord was very gracious. The surgery was a total success. Uh, No traces of cancer found in his body. Incredible success. Still a long recovery. So I thought it'll be a long time before I see him. But two weeks later, I come into my exegesis class, and here's John sitting in the front row. He's moving a little bit slowly, but he's back. And I, you know, I'm like, bro, what are you, what are you doing here? You know, shouldn't you be in bed somewhere? And he, and he said, no, I need this. I need to be here because he said to me, Eric, this, this, this health issue, this facing of death that I just had to go through, it had a, clearing, a clarifying effect, as these things so often do. He's saying, you know, I wasn't sure before this. I wasn't sure I was ready to go back to India. I wasn't sure I was ready for the sacrifice that that would require of me and my family. We weren't sure about it. But he's saying, now that we've come up against death. Now we know. Now we're ready to go. We're ready to make whatever days God gives us count for his glory because guess what? John knows that the resurrection is true. He sees so clearly now that the resurrection is true, that there is a life after death, and that he believes so much in resurrection that he's ready to go and embrace loss. So he's making plans to go lead a church in South India in an unreached place. And what that means that there are people who right now, as we sit here today, who have never heard the gospel, who are going to hear because of that 10-pound tumor. But it doesn't take a tumor, does it? 
right? Because look what Jesus says in the next chapter, even as he's entered Jerusalem, as they're planning his execution. They're even planning to execute Lazarus because so many people are believing because of this evidence. But look what he tells the disciples in 1224. Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's saying that that you take a seed, and if a seed is going to be locked away in a bank vault, it's safe, but it's worthless. A seed only grows, a seed only bears fruit. If If you take it out of that bank vault and you plant it in the earth and it dies, then it can bear fruit. The same thing is true of your life. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says there's two ways to live, the way of keeping and the way of losing. Keeping is about treasuring this present life, about about getting what you can. It's about avoiding risk. Keeping is about avoiding loss. But losing, losing, losing is about following the one who is the resurrection and the life so single-mindedly that everything else you could possibly keep in this world fades by way of comparison. Losing is the way of Jesus. Losing is the way of embracing loss for the salvation of men and the glory of God. And it's a paradox. Whoever's trying to keep loses. But whoever is trying to lose will keep. Will keep because keeping leads to death, but loss leads to life. Keeping, it's like taking a beautiful apple. Let's say you have an apple and, and you're putting it up on a shelf. You're just admiring that apple. You're looking at that apple and you're saying, what a wonderful apple that is. And and you're just looking at it and and as it slowly kind of changes color, it slowly dries out and eventually becomes this like hard, disgusting, shriveled up thing that nobody wants to eat. That's keeping. But losing is taking that same apple and it's planting it in the ground and seeing that apple grow into a tree in seeing that tree produce other apples. Fruit comes from that tree and it's taking those apples and planting them in the ground and, and seeing more trees come up and eventually there's this vast orchard as far as the eye can see because losing bears great fruit. Losing bears great fruit and guess what? Thomas eventually got it. Doubting Thomas, he wasn't sure about going to Bethany. He could see the uncertainty in this chapter. Later on, Thomas wanted proof that Jesus really was resurrected But after that, history tells us, Thomas's days of being safe were over. Because what Thomas did next, after the resurrection, Thomas packed up his bags, he got all his stuff, he got on a boat, he took the long journey to India. Thomas became the very first missionary to India. He didn't quit before it was quitting time. He embraced the loss of leaving home. He embraced the loss of suffering through hardship. He preached the gospel in South India. And then history says, Thomas died at the end of a spear. But a day is coming. A day is coming, Jesus says in John 5, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they'll come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And just imagine that on that day in Chennai, here's Thomas, and Thomas is going to march out of that tomb just like Lazarus did alongside thousands of others who have gained as a result of his loss. And in that resurrected body, here's Thomas, and he's going to have all of eternity to worship the one and serve the one who brought him from death back into life. And in that body, you're not going to hear Thomas complaining about a spear. So brothers and sisters... Face loss, 
because you believe he's the resurrection. But then Compass Bible Church, embrace loss because you believe, because you know that he's the life. So Compass, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Then let us also go that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Compass Bible Church. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here whom I love. Thank you for their partnership in the gospel. Father, may we see this text. May we see the glory of Christ. May we see the hope of resurrection, the joy of life. May we go from here and live this resurrection life, embracing loss for your glory, by your power, in your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.